Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. If you're using the uh, Red Pew Bible, that's on on page 831. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along as I read God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who are worship, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Sunday school teacher was discussing with her kindergarten class the way to heaven. So she asked her five-year-olds, if I sold my house and I sold my car, and I gave all my money to the church, would I get to heaven? No, all the children yelled in unison. The teacher went on. If I cleaned the church every day, if I mowed the church lawn, if I kept everything neat and tidy, would I get into heaven? Again, they all shouted, no. If I went to church every week and treated people kindly, Would I get to heaven? No, they answered correctly again. With a pleased look on her face, she then asked, Well, then how can I get to heaven? One of the five-year-olds yelled out, You gotta be dead. (laughs) She should have quit while she was ahead. What the teacher was attempting to highlight is that no amount of good works No amount of our religion, no amount of our righteousness, those things we might consider spiritual gains are of any credit when our life is opened up before a holy and just God. To put it in business terms, what we may consider to be assets may upon closer examination actually be liabilities. A CEO of a major firm invited his pastor out to lunch. 
And he began the conversation by saying, I have a CPA to keep me liquid, a lawyer to keep me legal, and a doctor to keep me healthy. But I have no one to help assess my spiritual condition. Pastor, can you give me a spiritual audit? I'm glad you asked. Let's conduct a little spiritual audit today. To do that, we're going to look at this passage that Scott just read for us in, in Philippians chapter 3. It is there that we even see Paul using some accounting terminology. Gains, losses, some translations say count or reckon. And we will see how Paul looks at his life in two columns. In one column, he lists what he thought were prophets but then moves them to the loss column. But before we look at this section of Scripture, I want to remind you of where we have been as we've been working our way through the book of Philippians. By the way, it was quite reassuring to me to learn that, that I had a biblical basis for my, for my repeating myself. And am I repeating myself to you? As Paul writes, did you notice in the middle of verse 1, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. So I have a biblical basis to repeat this. Here I go again saying to you the same things. Our theme has been about choosing joy. The key principle that, drive, that is driving that theme is that no one or nothing can rob us of joy without our consent. And while circumstances certainly have the power to disrupt our joy, we can still choose joy in the midst of it. While pressures of life press us in on all sides, and people might even come and mistreat us and and attempt to get the best of us, we still can choose joy. We have seen the shining example of Paul who chose to live above the circumstances rather than underneath them. You notice, they they couldn't get the best of Paul. They would say, we'll kill you, he'd answer, to die is gain. (laughs) Okay, we'll let you live, he'd answer, to live is Christ. Okay, we'll cause you to suffer, he'd reply, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. We'll show you in in prison. I'll convert your guards. (laughs) They couldn't get the best of him because his joy was in the Lord. You see, when our joy is in circumstances, it's all over the place. But when our joy is in the Lord, it can be constant. So be on guard, loved ones, as joy robbers try to break into your lives through several different doors. That is why we must be reminded again and again to choose joy. And so look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers. Now, it kind of, i got to stop here a second. It kind of makes me smile to think that Paul says finally, and then he's going to write two more chapters. It's kind of like the son who throughout the service kept asking his dad the meaning of various aspects of the service. And, when the, and he'd say, what does this mean? And the dad would explain it. And what does this mean? The dad would explain it. Well, when the son heard the preacher say, finally, the son turned to his dad and asked, and dad, what does that mean? 
The dad replied, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so again, I'm in good company. But really, I, I, think, I think Paul's using the word finally to signal a slight change in subjects. While the overall theme is the same, as he reminds them to rejoice in the Lord, he says there, verse 1, he adds, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. There was a particular reason, I believe, that Paul needed to remind them to choose joy. It is what comes next in verse 2. Notice what he says. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I don't think Paul's too concerned about being politically correct. He calls these grace-killing legalists dogs. Now, we hear the word dogs and we go, aw. We think of these nice, cute little puppies that we cuddle. Well, let me fill you in on what kind of animal that Paul is referring. These were street dogs. They were ravenous, dirty, disease-carrying animals that ravaged through the streets, posing a threat to anyone who got in their way. So Paul warns them, watch out. Watch out, because these people are going to try and keep you from joy. They attempt to, they're going to attempt to get your eyes off of Christ. Well, who are these dogs, these men who do evil, these mutilators of the flesh? They were Judaizers who were adding to the gospel. They were Jewish in their background. They, they likely would call themselves Christians. They were demanding that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved. And in this way, they were putting confidence in the flesh and what they could do. Folks, any time we add anything to what Christ has done for us on the cross and making the payment for our sin, we ruin it. It is not to be or ever to be Christ plus something, ever. Watch out for those kind of teachers. Watch out because there are many narrow-minded grace killers on the loose. And when we reduce the Christian life to a list of rules and regulations, joy will be absent. Guarantee that. When our God is too small and our world is too rigid, there's not much room left for joy. You kill grace, you kill joy. God's way is to not put confidence in our accomplishments, what we can do, but to, uh, to put our trust in what Christ has accomplished, what he has done for us on the cross for our salvation. Look at verse 3. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, meaning inwardly circumcised, the circumcision of the heart. He goes on, it is we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And yet there is this human tendency to add works to the gospel. It is so easy to slip into this thinking that we can impress God by what we do for him. Look at all my doing, Lord. Check out this spiritual heritage, Lord. Pretty impressive. They all count for something, right, Lord? See my spiritual prophet column, Lord? Ain't it something? Pretty impressive. 
Written on top of that is one word. Wasted. Wasted. Paul uses himself as an example of the treasures of the wasted life. The treasures of the wasted life. All this talk about putting confidence in the flesh brought Paul back to how he lived his life for years. It's at this point that Paul launches into his past, his own credentials. He had, it in, he had it all in terms of human achievements and religious accomplishments. What we now see is a close-up look at Paul and these verses that follow. Three things we see. We see Paul and his cherished prophets, first of all, his cherished prophets. Then we see Paul as a changed person. And then thirdly, we see Paul's consuming passion, his consuming passion. First, let's look at his cherished prophets. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. And, and now this, as we read this, this may not mean that much to us, but this is quite an impressive resume. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now I'm going to list them. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, God, of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You know, this is kind of a little Greek um, trash talking going on right here. You think you're something, he said. You think you have something to boast about? You think you're hot stuff? Well, let me know if you can match this. Nobody's trophy case was larger. He won the Heisman and the Pulitzer and the MVP and the Emmy Award and the gold medal. He won all the marbles. No one could match him. He was the Jew par excellence. He had crossed all his T's. He had dotted all his I's. What were the trophies in his case? Well, he, he, he had a rich family heritage. He had social status. He had biblical knowledge. He was a Pharisee through and through. You know, we may not, we hear Pharisee, we might not think very highly of a Pharisee, but they were very well respected in their day. They knew the word. They knew the law. Paul wasn't just a one foot in Pharisee. He had both feet in. He was fully dedicated. And he's building his case of one who had all that it takes to earn the approval with God. These are all my prophets. He had all the right stuff. That if audited by the religious leaders in his day, he, he would, have, would have been in column one, assets, gains, profits. Look at this. He lists seven advantages that gave him bragging rights over his peers. First four are those he received the last three of those he achieved. Now, I don't know if you noticed when I read those things, but what can be said about these seven things? This is very interesting to me. I want you to notice something about these seven things that Paul cherished. Did you see it? They weren't bad things. They weren't bad things. We might even say they were good things. Grew up in a good home, check. Grew up in a family with a good reputation, check. Studied under some good Bible teachers, check. Kept the Sabbath and all the external washings, check. 
had a moral lifestyle, followed all the rules, filled his calendar with religious activity, check, check, check. Had zeal for God, check. What's on your list? Grew up in a Christian home, check. Attend church, check. Remain faithful to my spouse, check. Helped out when needed, check. Said grace before meals, memorized scripture, hold a respected position in the church, check, check, check. Filled out a decision card, check. What are your earthly gains? What are you trusting in? Where is your security? Are you sure it can hold you? There's a monastery in Portugal, perched high on a 3,000-foot cliff, accessible only by a terrifying ride and a swaying basket. The basket is pulled with a single rope by several strong men, perspiring under the strain of the fully loaded basket full of people. One American tourist who visited the site while in the basket began to get a little nervous halfway up the cliff when he noticed that the rope was old and frayed. Hoping to kind of put his mind at ease, he asked the monk in charge, how often do you change the rope? And the monk replied, oh, whenever it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) If If our confidence is in what we can do, then we will never know how much is enough to please God. There's no security in that. There's no security in that. We're going to live in a state of fear. I mean, is this how we're to live our days? Is there a better way? Where do we find relief from this way of living that only leaves us exhausted, confused, and insecure? It's captured in one word. It's found in verse 7 in the midst of, of listing all his achievements we come to a little but potent three-letter word that begins verse 7. But. So we see Paul, a changed person. Not only cherished past, but Paul, a changed person. Paul's proud past came to an abrupt halt. It stopped. On the road to Damascus, when confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's life changed. He didn't simply change churches. He didn't simply change religions. He didn't simply change some habits in his life. He was a changed man. Thoroughly and radically changed. And when Christ gets a hold of us, I I mean, really gets a hold of us, our entire value system is turned right upside down. Those things we thought of spiritual profit before God move over to that lost column. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He doesn't stop there. Look at verse 8. He says, what is more, I consider everything, everything. It goes beyond his list of seven earthly gains. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, or better translated, I I must continue to count it all. I must continue to count it all rubbish 
that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Do you see it? All these things, the things he received by birth, the things he achieved are considered one big loss, one big fat zero. Rubbish! Dung! Did the pastor just say dung? It was a little awkward to say. This is a very, very strong word here. I mean, think manure. Think flushable. Think dirty diaper. Okay, you get the picture. That's what it is. How did Paul now view those trophies, those achievements, those strokes from others, those cherished prophets? Paul says it is rubbish. Paul becomes his own auditor and he opens up the book on his life. What does he discover? That he's not as wealthy as he thought. He was bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. Paul stopped to evaluate his life. He would have agreed with the philosopher who said an unexamined life is not worth living. Paul examines his life. His conclusion is that all that the world, that, that all that would be viewed as profit was actually a liability. What he thought was to his credit is really a debit. In the column where he listed his gains, he now writes one word over all those advantages, loss. All of these things, yes, even Good things are treasures of the wasted life. But if you saw Paul before his Damascus Road experience, while he was approving of the stoning of Stephen, and you asked him, Saul, do you think you're going to heaven? He would have answered, yes. On what basis, Saul? He would have answered, verses 4 through 6. You know, some people have enough morality, get this, Some people have enough morality to keep them out of trouble, but also enough to keep them out of heaven. Some people have enough morality to keep them out of trouble, but also enough to keep them out of heaven. Are you headed in the wrong direction? On a flight to Chicago, the pilot announced that the takeoff had been delayed due to mechanical failure. Forgetting that the intercom was still on, the pilot was heard saying, whoops, You never want to hear the pilot say that. A minute later, the pilot headed down the aisle toward the rear exit ramp with his hat in one hand and his briefcase in the other. And one of the passengers saw the pilot and asked him, where are you going? The pilot answered in a low voice, Denver. The passenger replied, this plane isn't going to Denver. It's going to Chicago. I know, the pilot said with his face turning red, I'm on the wrong plane. (laughs) Are you on the wrong plane? Are you on the wrong plane? You may, be, you may hate to admit it today, but you may need to look, you may need to, need to own your, that you're headed in the wrong direction. Faking it won't help you reach your destination. Only admission that all those things that give you significance and meaning and fulfillment, all those things that might be impressive on a human scale won't Cut it with God. It's been said, all our righteousness is like cotton candy in a rainstorm. 
It all evaporates, and we are left holding a soggy stick. Yes. And yet, throughout this country right now, there are many who think their lives will count because they brought their kids to church this morning. Multitudes of people sitting in pews throughout this country, this very moment, in nice clothes, with nice cars in the parking lot, will go home later to nice homes and nice jobs and nice businesses and nice kids, live highly moral lives, and none of it will matter in the end. Some will even attend Bible studies during the week. They may even lead Bible studies, and it might have the one word over the top, wasted. Sobering. If that list isn't giving you Jesus, it is rubbish. If that list isn't bringing you to deeper intimacy with Christ, who cares? What's the point? See, you can say, you don't do drugs, and and you don't drink, and you don't smoke, and you don't go to R-rated movies, and you watch movies about God, and you you wear a t-shirt with a verse on it, and you drive around with a fish bumper sticker on your car. But if you don't have Jesus, who cares? You do all that you're supposed to do, but don't get Jesus. What's the point? The point is whether or not you do those things. The point is Jesus. Make no mistake about it. Christianity is not about exchanging one set of externals for another set of externals. I used to do these things, but now I live my life by these things. Paul says that is not what it's all about. It's a personal relationship with the living Christ. What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I have to ask it, do you know Christ? Are you growing in your knowing him? What's on your list? What's on your list? What do you have written in your spiritual prophet column? Is it pushing you toward knowing Christ more intimately? Is it bringing you closer to Christ? If not, then will you do something this morning with that list? Will you consider it rubbish? Will you consider it waste? Now, this isn't just a word to those who who are trying to gain salvation by their own efforts. This is a word to everyone in this room. What often happens in the Christian community, and it really doesn't take long after we come to Christ that this happens, but what often happens in the Christian community is that we figure out the clothes we're supposed to wear, and then we try and fit ourselves into them. Do you know what I mean by that? There are things that I'm supposed to do now that I'm a Christian, and there are things I'm not supposed to do now that I'm a Christian. This is how I act. This is, this is, you know, what I'm supposed to read. This is how, my Christian language that I'm supposed to use. And now I fit myself into these clothes. Folks, that is lame. That is lame. Do this. Don't do that. All rubbish. If I don't know Jesus. Rubbish. Garbage. Worthless. 
it doesn't push me toward knowing Christ more. Paul continues, look at verse 10. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's not doubting whether the resurrection is going to happen. Maybe he's just wondering when. But I want to see just quickly, I want us to see Paul's consuming passion. Because this is where we're going to end this morning. Paul's consuming passion. He wanted to go deeper with Christ. He wanted to live in Christ's resurrection power more increasingly. He wanted to walk in suffering rather than run from it so that he would know Christ in greater depth. Paul says, I just want to know him. Know him. That's it. Again, throughout this country this morning, there are a lot of people going to church for the wrong reasons. Oh, I'll take Jesus if I can keep all this other stuff. Oh, I'll take Jesus if he heals me. Oh, I'll take Jesus if he meets my needs. He he makes me feel good. If he does something for me, I'll take Jesus. There's a lot of how people are coming to him. Are we coming here? Because we want to know him. Are we opening up God's word during the week because we want to know him? Am I going to that Bible study or am I going to that small group? Am I going to youth group? Am I going to whatever it is we're going to because I want to know him? Because you know what? We can come to the end of our life and find written on the top of the list one word, wasted. As a church, we can do this and we can do that and have written on top of, top of it all, wasted. Quite frankly, that scares me. Is it your consuming passion to know him? What's getting in the way of my knowing him? Let's conduct a little spiritual audit here. I want you to think two columns, two columns. If you have a piece of paper, you can put a line down the middle of your paper and you can divide it into two columns, whatever you want to do. But on the left side of the page, in column one, I want you to write the word prophet or think about the word prophet on the left side of that page. On the right-hand side of your paper or in your mind, I want you to write the word Words, surpassing greatness of knowing him. Prophet, surpassing greatness, surpassing greatness of knowing him. Now think about, or write down, now or sometime this week, what you would put in that left-hand column that could be considered good things that you're doing or, or good things you have received that are profitable in your life. You might put in there, grew up in a good home, attended church, attended Sunday school, I I read through the Bible in a year, I went to Bible college, whatever you'd put on that side. But think about the other column under the heading, surpassing greatness of knowing him, and ask yourself this question, do I want Christ more than anything else? Do I want Christ more than anything else? What is the stuff we need to consider rubbish in comparison to knowing him? And it might even be a good thing. 
But if that good thing isn't giving you Jesus, it is rubbish. If that good thing isn't pointing you to a deeper intimacy with him, it is dung. What rubbish do we need to throw away? Is doing for Christ, loved ones, is doing for Christ getting in the way of knowing Christ? Nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Nothing. Do we really believe it? Do we live like we believe it? How are we ordering our life around that passion? Because when our doing gets in the way of our knowing, we stop growing. Do we want him? A certain well-respected and very busy doctor would show up for dinner with his family. He would bark out some chores that needed to get done to everybody around the table. He would give quick advice to certain family situations without really listening to the problem. He would then retreat to his office, and he would do this every night. He would then retreat to his office to do some work. One evening, as he was preparing an article for a distinguished journal of medicine, his little boy crept into the forbidden sanctuary of his father's study. Daddy, he appealed. Daddy. Without speaking, the doctor opened his desk drawer and handed the boy a box of candy. (laughs) A few minutes later, the boy again said, Daddy? And his father opened up the drawer again, absentmindedly handed the boy a pencil. Gave him some crayons. Daddy, the boy persisted. The doctor this time responded with a grunt. Daddy, the boy called out again. And angered, the busy doctor swung around in his chair. And he said, what on earth is so important that you insist on interrupting me? Can't you see I'm busy? I've given you candy. I've given you a pencil. I've given you crayons. Now what do you want? Daddy, the boy replied, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. While we're doing this and busily doing that for him, our Lord whispers, Child, I want to be with you. Is Christ calling out to you in your busyness? Are you stopping enough and what you're doing to hear the cry of God's heart for you because nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing is the cry of our hearts more than anything else. Lord, I want to be with you. I want to know you. What's getting in the way of that? Will you consider it loss? Will you? We're coming around the communion table, and I thought it was very appropriate that we ended on communion this morning. Because we can just rush into this, and let's remember this check. Okay, communion. Coming around the communion table has one purpose, ultimately, to know him. To know him better, to know him more intimately. And so as we come around communion this morning, I'm going to have the service come up now. As we come around the communion table this morning, I would invite you and your moment of of silence before God, just look at and ask, what is getting in the way of my knowing him?
Because even a religious activity can get in the way of knowing him. Whatever it is, will you do a spiritual art this morning? God, show me. I have it over here. I need to put it in my lost column. Because it's getting in the way of my knowing you. Let's pray. God, whatever that is, I can only speak to my own heart on that. Everything else would just be conjecture and guessing and really not my place. But may we do a little spiritual audit this morning. Allow you to look right into our soul and force us to ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it because I want to know you? Was it because I'm trying to fit in the clothes? God, show us what it is. If we have to do something radical today, I pray everybody else would applaud that rather than talk them out of it. I pray we would do something radical that we, if we need to, that we would do that. Not fearing people, fearing you. Because I don't want to come to the end of my life. I don't want the people in this room to come to the end of their life. I don't want this church to come to the end of their life and it say wasted on the top. Show us. What we need to see this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.